And turn with me again to the book of Romans. Reading now uh, verses 3 through 5. And so looking for a second time at verses 3 and 4 and including verse 5 in the reading. I'll just read verses 1 through 5 to give it continuity, but verses uh, 3 through 5 are are our focus. And so uh, this is what Paul says here, God's word. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for the book of Romans and we thank you more broadly for the word of God and all of the holy scriptures uh, through which in the Old Testament you promised beforehand the coming of your son and now in the, in the New Testament, you, you declare to us uh, all that he did for us and all that is true of him now as our Savior and as our Messiah. Help us, O oh God, through the preaching now of the word to hear by faith and to be established in our faith, even as Paul would seek to do through this book, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time, if you remember, we began to unfold this contrast that was present or the parallelism in verses three and four concerning God's son promised long ago in the in the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament. Verse two, verses three and four is the contrast Christ in his birth, verse three, and then on the other side, Christ in his resurrection, verse four, summed up with the phrase Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what's true of him now. That he has been born and has been raised. He's not just the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we were looking at that that contrast, but in reality, we only began to do so. Last time, uh, speaking of these opening verses, I said that there is a density of thought. Paul is saying a lot in a few words that it would be wrong to overlook. He is summarizing his gospel, especially uh, in verses one through four. The gospel of God, he calls it the gospel which concerns God's son. That person is Jesus Christ, our Lord. But how that appears to us is his focus, how it appears to us that Jesus Christ, our Lord, is God's son, how Jesus was manifested in the flesh. And how it became apparent that this person, Jesus of Nazareth, was in fact Christ and Lord, as Peter says at the conclusion of his Pentecost sermon. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. We looked at that last time. It involved once more his being born. It involved equally God's declaration that he was the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And then you see in verse five, now that we're including that, it is through him and for his name's sake that Paul preached the gospel and that Paul received grace 
and apostleship for the obedience to the faith among all nations. And so the focus here at the outset in the first five verses is entirely in the book of Romans upon this person, Jesus Christ. The book of Romans or the letter to the Romans begins with an emphasis on him and especially what happened to him as he came into the world, what he did, what he did for our salvation. And that message is properly speaking. Let us see what the gospel is. The gospel is an announcement and a declaration of what God has done through his son for our salvation. And that is the message, not surprisingly, that we find in what we call the four gospels. Each of them is an account of what happened to him as he came into this world, as he lived, as he died and as he was raised. Again, that is, properly speaking, what the gospel of God is and what it consists of. And so let us be clear about this as we begin our study of the book of Romans. It's something that Paul is uh, establishing early on and emphasizing early on. We are perhaps, uh, let us say, too eager as we begin the book of Romans to consider the doctrine of justification. And so eager that we forget who it is that makes the doctrine possible, who it is that secures our justification and what he did to justify us. Do you remember what Paul says in Romans chapter four, verse twenty five, speaking of Christ? Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Our justification was security, says, through his death and through his resurrection. And so you see how Paul begins the letter to the Romans, not with an account of justification that comes later. And that does admittedly become the focus but with an account of Jesus Christ, the son of God, who became man, who died and who was raised and who's now reigning from heaven. He is effectively summarizing the entire contents of the four Gospels in verses three and four. And then he is describing our relationship to him as a result of what he has done in verse five. Through him and for his name's sake, that's verse five. Well, I want to begin in the first place with a further exp exploration of the contrast that's found in verses three and four, the, the gospel of God, which concerns God's son. The last time I said about that contrast that this described two sides of his existence, the human and the divine. But I also said that it describes two sides of his coming into this world. In other words, two stages of his incarnation. And it's the second uh, statement or the second aspect that I want to explore further. What John Murray calls two successive stages. The way Paul describes, as we find in the Gospels, the historical process as the son of God that Jesus underwent in order to achieve our salvation. If we were to look more closely at what is being said in verses one through four, we see once more that the gospel of God concerns God's son. That is the eternal person of the son, the second person of the Trinity, the word who was with God in the beginning. John chapter one, verse one. And about him, two things are said, which occur in two participial phrases, each of which contains a participle, which is then further qualified. So the parallelism looks something like this. The son of God was born. That's the first participle. But he was also declared, verse four, that's the second participle. And of each participle, 
Two further things are said. Concerning the fact of his birth on the one side, it was according to the flesh and of the seed of David. Describing the conditions of his birth. Concerning the fact of God's declaration, the second participle, that he was the son of God with power. It was, he says, uh, two things further are said, according to the spirit of holiness and by the resurrection from the dead. And so the parallelism is more or less present throughout. Each phrase uh, occupies a similar function and balances and explains both sides of the equation. Now, I realize that uh, what I just said is somewhat technical. But my interest here is only to explore the nature of the contrast and the parallelism. And so a certain amount of grammatical considerations are necessary. What we are considering once again is what was true of Jesus as he came into the world and accomplished our salvation. And there are several things that can be added to our discussion last time about these two verses. The first of these is for us to try to understand the precise nature of the flesh-spirit contrast. He was born according to the flesh, verse 3. He was raised according to the spirit of holiness, verse 4. Two statements which more or less once again balance each other out. They're describing two successive stages that the Son of God underwent in becoming man and achieving our salvation. First the flesh, then the spirit. Which you remember we saw, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll come back to that. First, the first stage which the Son of God underwent in becoming man and achieving our salvation was his birth. Again, the first participle. We saw that last time, but we failed to explore the precise nature of the phrase according to the flesh. And what that added to the discussion. To say that he was born is already to say that he became man and that he possessed a fleshly nature. But if that's all that Paul means to say, then there's no need to add the phrase according to the flesh. And so the, the question which we have is in what sense, according to the flesh, qualifies the idea of being born? What does it add to the discussion? And here, if we pause and realize that in these two verses, Paul is summarizing his gospel and he's summarizing the gospel that we find in the gospels. We might ask what the category of the flesh has to do with his understanding of the gospel. In other words, we would have to look and see how he uses the term and the phrase elsewhere in the flesh or according to the flesh. And if you were to do that, you would discover, and I'm sure you already know, that that is a major category or idea in the writings and the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Now, I won't try to do so exhaustively here. I'll just summarize his teaching and then look at one passage or uh, two passages, excuse me. And here I would point out that the flesh as a category is capable of two primary connotations or two primary meanings, both of which I believe are being used here. The first is the ethical sense. As, for instance, Paul says in this same letter, and you'll notice again, he is contrasting in these verses in chapter 8, the flesh and the spirit. Well, this is how he describes the flesh, verses eight, uh, 4 through 8 of chapter 8, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You notice the same exact phrasing that you find in verses 3 and 4. 
of chapter 1. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And he continues to work out that contrast throughout that chapter. And as I say, it's the same contrast that we find in verses 3 and 4. And so the flesh there is seen as a way of life. It is a system of ethics that dominates the present evil age. It is a way of describing the sinfulness of the present age. And you'll find many similar statements throughout Paul's writing. Galatians chapter 5, for instance, or 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But the second connotation that we would find describing, again, in the book of Romans, the idea of being in the flesh or according to the flesh is simply to describe the conditions of human existence, the fleshly life, what it is to be a natural man who lives in this world. Again, to be subject to the conditions of human existence in this world. And so, for instance, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 5, he says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. He says something similar, though more positively, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The life that I now live in the flesh, Christ lives in me and I live for him. In other words, to be in the flesh or to be born according to the flesh, which is what Paul says about Christ, means something more than just to say that he assumed a fleshly form and he had a human body. It means that Jesus entered into the historical conditions that were ethically bankrupt into this present evil age. And secondly, the conditions that are associated with human existence. He entered into those conditions which were dominated by weakness, sin and death. That is what it means to be in the flesh. That is not to say that Jesus himself sinned or ever sinned or even ever wanted to sin. He didn't. But it is to say that he entered into the arena, so to speak, in which sin was dominant and sin was the deciding factor to come into the flesh and into this world was to associate himself not himself, not only with sinners, but with sin itself, a sin that he bore and carried to the cross and which killed him. And sin, which even as we read in the Gospels before his death, led to the weakness of the flesh that he assumed as he walked on this earth. It was, Paul says, because he was born according to the flesh. That is what explains everything that we read in the Gospels. That he entered into these historical conditions. He entered into that arena in which we are now living. But that leads us to consider the other side. According to the spirit of holiness. The full statement is this verse four. He was declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And so you see there that the resurrection is paramount. It's the other side of the birth. On the one side, he was born. On the other side, he was raised. It tells us the method by which the resurrection, I mean, tells us the method 
by which he entered into the second stage of his incarnate humanity. His birth brought him into the arena of the flesh. His resurrection brought him into the arena of the spirit. It was by the resurrection of the dead that he was declared the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. You see, what Paul is describing is not what is true of him considered solely as the son of God. But rather, in that verse, verse 4, what is true of him now that he has become man, having been born and then was crucified and raised. And let us also see that the resurrection too, strictly speaking, is an action with reference to his humanity, every bit as much as his birth, his life and his death. The resurrection is an action which God did with respect to his humanity that he assumed when he was born. Something that God did to him now as a man. What God did was he raised his body from the dead. Again, a statement with respect to his humanity. And by this resurrection, something further happened to this person. Now he entered into the realm that is characterized by the Holy Spirit. Hence the phrase, according to the spirit of holiness or simply according to the Holy Spirit. Just as the phrase according to the flesh described the conditions which were present upon his birth, the conditions into which he entered as a man, as the God man, so likewise the phrase functions uh, in the same way. It describes, according to the spirit, describes the conditions that were present consequent to his resurrection, the realm or the arena into which he entered. Again, we have to try to gather what Paul is saying from this little phrase from his broader theology, according to the spirit. That is what describes his resurrection. It was according to the spirit. And here, just like the the flesh, there's no lack of teaching. The teaching of Paul and the teaching of Romans, we will see, especially chapter eight, is full of the teaching of. Of the Holy Spirit. Paul was a theologian not just of Jesus Christ. But of the Holy Spirit. And if we were to summarize what it means. To be in the spirit. It would be something like this. To be in the spirit is to be. In the life of heaven. And of the kingdom of God. Again the realm of the spirit. Is the realm where the spirit dominates. And where his life and especially. His power is the deciding factor. No longer sin. Remember, the flesh, sin is the deciding factor. It's the power that dominates. But here it is the power of the Holy Spirit that dominates. Indeed, if for Jesus to be born brought him into contact with the flesh, that is human weakness and sin and death, to be raised on the other side by the Spirit brings him into contact In his divine human form with the fullness of the life of the Holy Spirit. And it is in this sense that Peter declares in his Pentecost sermon, speaking of the resurrected Jesus, verse 33, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He poured out this, which you now see and hear Jesus has entered into and is now full of the life of the Holy Spirit. And it is the same Uh, Conditions that Paul is describing in the passage we looked at earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The first man natural, the second man, the second man spiritual, the first man corruptible, the second man powerful, and so forth. He's describing the two successive stages 
of Jesus Christ in the flesh, in the spirit. And what we ought to notice with respect to Jesus, but also with respect to ourselves, is that the resurrection is the crucial category. It is the turning point in the contrast. It is the moment at which Jesus pivots from the flesh to the spirit. The point at which he pivots from the weakness of the flesh to the life and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it is in this sense that we must try to understand the designation, the Son of God with power. That in his resurrection, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power according to the Holy Spirit. A designation which has to do not so much with his eternal status as the Son of God, but with respect to his newfound status as the Son of Man, the seed of David, who was born and who became the Messiah, who was the Messiah. In this way, he is considered not purely in terms of his divine sonship, the declaration that he's the son of God with power in his resurrection. But he is considered in terms of his newfound status as the mediator of the elect. It is a statement, again, with respect to his incarnate existence as the God man. It is as the God man. Who was born, lived, died and was raised that he is declared now the son of God with power. By the resurrection from the dead. In other words, now that Jesus, the son of God, the God man has entered into the realm of the spirit by the resurrection from the dead, which is a realm of power and heavenly life. He is no longer clothed with weakness, uh, the weakness of fleshly form. He is no longer considered or described in those terms as we find him in the Gospels. We no longer find a weak and a dying servant. But now he is preeminently, God says by the resurrection, the son of God with power. And so we are to consider him always. And as he assumes this role in this station, Now, exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father, Peter says in Pentecost, his heavenly life now flows down to the church perpetually. Not only has he received the fullness of the Spirit, but having done so, he pours out his Spirit upon the church, which changes fundamentally the relationship between Christ and the church and the dynamic that is present between the two. It is this that Peter has in mind, again, in what he says in the Pentecost sermon. It is equally this which the writer to the Hebrews has in view in the book of Hebrews. Speaking of Christ assuming his station in the throne room of God. Now as our mediator appearing as our great high priest forevermore, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Not as he was in the Gospels, but as he now is in heaven. The son of God with power. He who is reigning from heaven. And this is what becomes, beloved, the dominant vantage point of the New Testament following the Gospels. Not Jesus as he was, but Jesus as he now is. And Jesus as we find him now as we worship him as his disciples. Understanding this makes sense, if you think of it, of the apostles themselves. So long as they as as they uh, dealt with the son of David on earth, as we find not only him, but them in the Gospels, 
We find men who lacked faith, men who lacked boldness, men who, uh, like sheep, were easily scattered when the shepherd was struck. Even after that, following his resurrection, we find them hiding for fear of the Jews. But contrast that to Peter, again, on Pentecost Day, come out of hiding, preaching courageously the message of Jesus, and even uh, very shortly after that, being imprisoned, he was now a man who was unafraid. Seeing this in his case and the other apostles, contrasting, in other words, the apostles as we find them in the Gospels and then as we find them in the book of Acts, we might ask the question, what is it that accounts for this change in the disciples themselves? And the answer is plain and simple, the change which occurred in the life of Jesus. The change that is being described in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The change that is being described in Peter's mighty Pentecost sermon. It is this change with respect to Jesus that accounts for the great change in the disciples. Which once more Peter obviously is conscious of as he preaches that Pentecost sermon. He is describing the church and the people of God now is standing in a new relation with Jesus, the Messiah, and God as a result. And the value of seeing this is enormous. Not only for them, but for ourselves as well. Because it not only describes the vantage point of the New Testament, but it describes, as I've I've been trying to say, the way in which we as the church are associated now with Jesus. We are not associated with his weakness. We are associated with his power. The resurrection we discover is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me uh, clarify. Is the decisive event not only in the life of Jesus as the God man. But it is the decisive event in the life of the early church. And it is the decisive event in the life of the church ever after, especially once you see Pentecost as the natural consequence of it. And so this explains our own experience of the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'm saying. For now we deal with the Lord, not as the disciples did in the gospels, weak and afraid and unbelieving, but as they dealt with him him in the book of Acts. Courageous, full of faith and boldness, even willing to suffer and die for him. They dealt not with the earthly Jesus, but with the resurrected Jesus who assumes a new station and a new power. And who sends forth that power and that life of his spirit upon the church. And so, if we were to think not simply of the word which now characterizes The life of Jesus, but now the word which characterizes the life of the church in relation with the resurrected and exalted and seated Jesus on the throne of God. That word would be power. The word which characterizes the life of the church now is not that of weakness, but power. And thus we find Paul again working out his theology, the same idea and the same point and the same contrast between the flesh and the spirit says this. Our own experience of the gospel in terms of the preaching, he says, first Corinthians chapter two, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with the excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my persuasion were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. You might even find him in chapter one. 
describing that in terms of the flesh. But in demonstration, he says, of the spirit and of power that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Or as he says a little later on in chapter four, verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Again, that is the experience of the church, not of fleshly weakness, not of just words, mere words, but of power. And the only thing that could possibly account for this power that is present in the weakness of Paul's preaching and in the weakness of this little assembly that we have here is the presence of the Holy Spirit that the resurrected Jesus poured out upon us and the continual supply of grace that he now pours down from heaven. And these are things, beloved, that you will only ever understand what Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, for instance, if you are a Christian. It simply makes no sense to the natural man. In fact, he goes on to say that later on in that same chapter. Oh, but if you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, if you know him as he now is reigning from heaven and the spirit which he now pours down upon the church, well, then you will know something of what he's describing. Do you understand the importance of this word power? Again, it is the defining category. It defines and describes the life of Jesus. Now he is now the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness. As he ever lives to make intercession for us in the throne room of God. And it is thus, therefore, the life of the church in her or or describes rather the life of the church in a relationship to him. Power. Look a little further in Romans chapter one and you'll see the word again. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Do you know anything of this power that Paul is describing that is found only in the gospel and that is found only in a saving relationship to Jesus Christ by faith? Do you know what it is to be full of the spirit As Jesus pours out the gift of the spirit from heaven and to be conscious of this power. Well, one of the ways that we become conscious of it appears in verse five, where he says, and I referred to this earlier, through him, we have received grace and apostleship for the obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Well, through him, we have received. That's the first phrase. One of the ways that we become conscious of the power is the grace that we receive through him. He's saying once again, and considering Jesus as the mediator, what he has become as a result of his birth and his resurrection and his exalted status and station now in the heavenly places. He is the one through whom grace comes to us. Through him, we have received grace. And so, again, you see the centrality of this person considered as he now is the son of God with power, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And here we might ask, seeing that describing him this way, he he goes on to say through him, we have received grace power with respect to whom? Well, with respect to us. He is now invested with a power that he exercises constantly on behalf of the church power that is not purely with respect to himself but on behalf of the church and for her sake, which is Paul's thought, for instance, in Ephesians chapter one, 
where Paul describes that power by which he was raised to the highest place. It is the same point from which he is now reigning. That power, he says, God is exercising toward you who believes, who believe. And it is his prayer that we might more and more come to know that power, that same power in the life of the church. And so it's in this sense that Paul says it's through him that we receive grace. He is the medium. He is the instrument. God not only exercises it in him in the resurrection, but as the resurrected Lord now through him to the church. Just as Paul says, it is through him that Paul received apostleship. He's saying we have nothing if not for him. There's no possibility of grace if he does not mediate it, the son of God with power. If he does not stand in heaven now as my great high priest. And if he does not enable me to deal with God on another basis than my sin. Even his own, his place there instead of mine. And so you see the importance of the phrase through him. And we'll see this again in verse 7 next time. But added to this is the phrase which he closes with at the end of verse 5 for his name. That is why Paul did what he did. It's why he wrote the letter. It's why he preached to all nations the gospel, calling all men everywhere to the obedience of faith for his name. It was uh, it was for no other reason. It was all for him. It was he who called me, Paul says. It was he who ministered this grace to me and made me what I am, a product of grace. And it is for him, for his name, that I now do all that I do. Again, the centrality of the person, Jesus Christ, everything is determined by him. Everything is described in terms of him. But that leads now to the final point when Paul says that it was through him and for his name that he preached to all nations, calling them to the obedience of faith. Now, that is a phrase which requires uh, a certain amount of explanations. And so several comments are necessary here. What does he mean by the obedience of faith? Well, once again, we ought to see that Paul is summarizing his message. He's summarizing the gospel. What did he preach? What did he call men to as he preached? What was the summons of the gospel as he preached? The summons of the gospel was simply this. The obedience of faith. That this was a kind of summary of his message is confirmed when we find the same phrase at the end of the book of Romans, chapter 16 Verse 26, he says, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. But the second thing I would notice is that there's a slight translation issue here where I will again state my preference uh, for the newer translations who translate this phrase as obedience of faith, not obedience to the faith. The older way of translating it, obedience to the faith, makes it appear that the faith is uh, the faith is something we have to obey, a body of teaching we have to obey. And that is the sense I think that the older translations give, whether they meant to or not. But the newer translations capture the sense better when they, they translate it as the obedience of faith. And I think if you were to look at the Greek, you would agree that's a better rendering. And that gives the sense... That obedience is what faith itself consists of. 
In other words, the summons of the gospel is to believe it. That's what God is calling men to. That's what he's calling all men everywhere to do. It's to believe in order to be saved. The obedience of faith. That's the actual message of the gospel. Is presented as a command to be obeyed. And he who believes obeys the command. And thus his faith is seen as an act of obedience. Now that's how it's classically been understood. Even, uh, even in spite of this odd translation that we have in the King James. Faith itself considered as an act of obedience. And because this is true, it clarifies the sense in which the gospel comes to us. It doesn't come to us as a mere idea. It comes to us as a summons. You remember what Jesus said when he first preached at the beginning of the gospels. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He announced the coming of the kingdom, the presence of the kingdom. And he told men to repent. It was a summons. If you like, uh, God is giving us an ultimatum. He's saying, in essence, here is my power on display, the power of the kingdom of God on display in my own son. It is a power available unto salvation to all who believe. But you see, if you do not believe, if you do not have faith, then you are cut off. You cannot know this power. There is no way to experience this power but by faith. Paul later in Romans chapter 10 laments that the Jews in chapter 10 verse 16 did not, he says, obey the gospel. And what does he mean when he says they did not obey the gospel? He means, if you understand what he's saying in chapter 10, which is all about faith, they did not believe it. They heard the message, but they didn't believe it. Thus, he says they did not obey it. Yes, but on the other side, the one who has faith is the one who hears the summons and he submits to it. He obeys it. You see, to speak of it like this is to bring in the element of submission. Faith is more than assent. It is more than mere agreement. It involves submission and obedience. The man who has faith doesn't just think about it. And decide he agrees with it. No, he says to himself in the presence of the summons of the gospel. If I am actually to be saved, I must place myself under this teaching. I must submit to it and give myself to it fully. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, obeying the gospel means believing it, accepting it, submitting yourself to it. And so God is not just dealing with our minds in the gospel or the intellect. He's dealing with our persons. The entire man, which includes the will and the soul. He is declaring and exercising his own power toward you who believe. Yes, but do you have faith? Do you have the obedience of faith? Have you heard the summons of the gospel to believe and obeyed it? Are you prepared to actually submit to this teaching and this gospel and this person, Jesus Christ, our Lord? And... To give the full sense of the meaning of the, of the obedience of faith. Are you happy about it? Are you glad to submit and to be saved by him? And in no other way. You see this word obedience carries with it that sense as well. Not a mere toleration of a new authority in our lives. That is not the scriptural sense of obedience. Obedience in the Bible is more like this. It is a happy acceptance. It is a delighting in what God would have us to do. It is a spontaneous and a joyful thing. Indeed, in light of that, I might even be prepared to describe faith like that. The obedience of faith. 
a happy acceptance and submission to the gospel of God. And the man who does that has faith. And so Paul will say a little later on once more. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Amen. And let us now come to the table.